hello and good evening and welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly current events, media analysis, and freeform commentary show. My name is Jim Dwyer and I'll be doing the program solo this evening. I hope everybody weathered Art Fair uh, pleasantly enough. Speaking of the weather, of course, it uh, could hardly have been better. I think that's been a pleasant surprise to everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. The uh, tradition is that the sweltering heat and the pop-up thunderstorms can at least guarantee some degree of misery, but uh, no complaints there, I suspect, from anybody uh, on that note. But uh, I do want to quickly issue a brain damage award that is art fair related. Um, not going to complain about uh, waste management issues, as I often do, but this is, in fact, actually a waste-related issue. Although I won't say it's related to anything to do with fair organizers or uh, the crowds which turn up to uh, roam the streets of our fair city. But, indeed, uh, this Brain Damage Award is for the people of Post Serial, which, uh, who are responsible for one of the more ridiculous and grotesque wastes of uh, post-consumer materials <coughs> that I've seen in quite a long time. Now, I don't see the entire art fair. I see basically the stretch of liberty that runs from state to division. So perhaps there was something more stupid out there. But uh, this one took the cake for me. If you didn't see this, or if you did, uh, here's what it was. <clears throat> I saw people walking around with sort of cardboard fold-over hors d'oeuvre trays. Uh, there were cutaway holes for like six to eight uh, little plastic drinking cups, which contained some sort of uh, dry goods. <clears throat> Upon closer inspection, these appeared to be like breakfast cereal. Indeed, that's what they were. It was a breakfast cereal sampler pack, sort of like those little mini boxes that you'd Mom used to buy in packs of eight back in the day if you were traveling or something. <clears throat> well, when I actually saw the booth that was distributing these things, it was indeed post cereals set up uh, right out in front of the Michigan Theater there with a sort of uh, bulk foods dispensary of various breakfast cereals. And uh, in the back of this booth were several large piles of cardboard and paper, a huge pile of boxes that had moments before contained other boxes of cereal. Well, these boxes uh, were folded up and neatly stacked like cordwood. Next to those were the folded up and neatly stacked boxes of the actual cereal boxes. Beside that was a couple of huge bags containing the plastic insert bags that contain the actual cereal. Many of the cereals were the sort of highly processed uh, corn syrup laden uh, sugar bombs that uh, are the favorite of so many children. But uh, what an enormous uh, quantity of waste. And as I walked past, I couldn't help muttering out loud to myself, my goodness, you know, what a shocking waste of materials. And one of the young men working at the stand, a college-age fellow, uh, nodded in agreement with me, shaking his head in disgust, saying, yeah, I can't believe it. It's this, so, there's so much waste here. Um, reminds me of the famous Pogo cartoon late in Walt Kelly's run. He, uh, you know, began, as he always did, commenting on current events, but talking about the environment. And there's a famous panel where uh, Pogo, the little 
water rat, whatever Pogo exactly was, a possum, not season a possum, uh, looking around the Okefenokee Swamp where he and his buddies live and saw, you know, bottles and cans and signs of human garbage and uh, muttered uh, sagely to himself, we have met the enemy and he is us. Well, Alexander Coburn once wrote that uh, as much as I love Pogo, and certainly we should all love and investigate Pogo, if you've never read it before, you should really read it. It's a great strip. Uh, but Alexander Coburn took issue with that uh, phrasing, uh, the enemy is not us, we are merely the consumers, and although we can make educated choices about not buying so much packaging, and indeed buying bulk foods, and whenever possible, I'm as guilty as anyone of buying packaged foods, there's no crime in it, of course, but uh, the crime is that we live in a society that has sort of uh, emblazoned waste as a natural aspect of our daily lives. Um, the packaging industry, in fact, uh, exploits our own labor for free to uh, do the recycling. Someone's probably going to stand up from post cereals and say, well, we recycle all those materials and we will use them again. But the vast quantities of energy necessary to produce these boxes and boxes and bags in the first place and then to recycle them again requires more energy uh, just to make more things to be recycled again to be, you know, recycling's great, but you know, reducing and minimizing are a big part of that step. And so post cereals, you get a brain damage award, not because of your cereals, which are fine and tasty, but because uh, you didn't think this through, and if you were going to be distributing mass quantities, why not just pack them in mass quantities and have a large box with a large bag and a bunch of cereal inside instead of boxes of boxes of boxes of boxes of boxes of boxes of bags of cereal. Well, not to belabor the point, there are other more serious and important issues around, but that's one that's sort of stuck in my craw. So uh, let's have a little palate cleanser here and uh, return in a moment to consider another issue of the day. Well, the madness in uh, Gaza goes on unabated, and of course, what's new? Uh, Gaza has always been a uh, source of bad news, and it certainly uh, shows no signs of letting up. Uh, certainly, the New York Times yesterday had an article about how language is being uh, distorted and manipulated in social media and in official government positions. Um, I don't have access to that article at my fingertips, but uh, it makes some very good points that uh, the, the way that civilians are being transferred into hostages uh, by Israeli language and the way in which body counts are so out of balance, it's considered to be a, a tit-for-tat blood feud, uh, back and forth, and of course, it is. But the body count ratios are entirely out of whack and render that simple comparison uh, to be 
an absurd one. Uh, it's clearly uh, something like a 10 or 12 to 1 uh, casualty rate. In fact, one of the lead stories in yesterday's Times uh, mentioned that amongst the, I think, 13 Israeli killed uh, to 187 Palestinians, uh, it mentioned that two of the Israeli soldiers killed were, in fact, from Texas and California. Uh, and that, of course, is part of this fostering of the illusion that uh, Israel's on our side somehow. Uh, and, you know, kind of a head-scratcher moment there, too, because doesn't it say somewhere in our Constitution that if you take up uh, weapons for another nation's army, you forswear your citizenship? Now, I know we have dual citizenship arrangements with a number of countries, uh, but to actually take up arms and fight in another country's army, um, that's a little puzzling. Uh, certainly when uh, some Americans have uh, wandered off, uh, what was that name of that kid, John Walker, who uh, wandered off and joined the Taliban? Uh, well, certainly we don't have any dual citizenship uh, accords with Afghanistan, but uh, I really don't see much difference in uh, an American youth growing up to fight for the Taliban uh, or a uh, guy from Texas uh, deciding to go do his patriotic Israeli duty, uh, he doesn't die as an American citizen. Uh, I think he dies as an Israeli soldier. And that's uh, just my own personal take on that. I don't understand how that quite works. But I would like to share with you uh, a piece by Norman Solomon and Abba Solomon. Uh, Norman Solomon, of course, has written a number of books uh, with Noam Chomsky over the years on uh, media distortion and manipulation and uh, he's written a piece for the today's uh, counterpunch which is entitled editorial position of the New York Times thumbs up for Gaza slaughter reads as follows over the weekend the New York Times sent out a clear signal the mass slaughter of civilians is acceptable when the Israeli military is doing the killing under the headline Israel's war in Gaza the most powerful newspaper in the United States editorialized that such carnage is necessary the lead editorial in the July 19th edition flashed a bright green light, reassuring the U.S. and Israeli governments that the horrors being inflicted in Gaza were not too horrible. From its first words, the editorial methodically set out to justify what Israel was doing. Quote, after 10 days of aerial bombardment, the editorial began, Israel sent tanks and ground troops into Gaza to keep Hamas from pummeling Israeli tanks with rockets and carrying out terrorist attacks via underground tunnels. Close quote. The choice of when to date the start of the crisis was part of the methodical detour around inconvenient facts. For instance, no mention of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's June 30th announcement that the human animals of Hamas would pay after three Israeli teenagers kidnapped in Israel-controlled territory in the West Bank were found dead. No mention of the absence of evidence that Hamas leadership was involved in those murders. Likewise, absent from the editorializing sequence was Israel's June crackdown in the West Bank with home raids, area closures, imprisonment of hundreds of Hamas party activists, including legislators. Most of all, the vile core of the Times editorial was its devaluation of Palestinian lives in sharp contrast to Israeli lives. The Times editorial declared that Hamas leaders deserve condemnation for military actions from civilian areas in the dense Gaza enclave, but Netanyahu merited mere expressions of concern about further escalation. Absent from the editorial was any criticism of Israel's ongoing bombardment of homes, apartment blocks, hospitals, beaches, and other civilian areas 
with U.S. supplied ordnance. At the time, there had been one Israeli death from the hostilities, and at least 260 deaths among Gazans, as well as injuries in thousands. The contrast illuminates a grotesque difference in the Times' willingness to truly value the humanity of Israelis and Palestinians. In the morally skewed universe that the Times editorial board evidently inhabits and eagerly promulgates, Hamas tends to terrorize Israel, Israeli citizens, while Israel merely intends to accomplish military objectives by dropping thousands of tons of bombs on Palestinian people in Gaza. A keynote of the editorial came when it proclaimed, quote, There was no way Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was going to tolerate the Hamas bombardments, which are indiscriminately lobbed at Israeli population centers. Nor should he. Close quote. While sprinkling in a hand-wringing couple of phrases about dead and wounded civilians, the editorial had nothing to say in condemnation of the Israeli force killing, uh, the Israeli force killing and maiming them in large numbers. Between the lines was a tacit message to Israel: "It's okay to kill more." And to Israel's patrons in Washington, stand behind Israel's mass killing in Gaza. Under the unfortunate circumstances, it's needed. When the editorial came off the press, the Israeli military was just getting started. And no doubt Israeli leaders from Netanyahu on down were heartened by the good, war-making seal of approval from the New York Times. After all, the most influential media voice in the United States, where the government is the main backer of Israel's power, was proclaiming that the mass killing by the Israeli military was regrettable but not objectionable. The night after the Times editorial went to press, the killing escalated. Among the calamities, the Israeli military shelled the Gaza neighborhood of Shijaya throughout the night with non-stop tank fire that allowed no emergency services to approach. Eyewitness media reports from Shijaya recounted scenes of absolute devastation with bodies strewn in the streets and the ruins. Two days after the dead, the editorial reached Times newsprint over 150 more were counted dead in Gaza. No media enabler was more culpable than the editorializing voice of the Times which had egged on the Israeli assault at the end of a week that began with the United Nations reporting 80% of the dead in Gaza were civilians. The Times editorial was in step with President Obama, who said, apparently without intended irony, that no country can accept rockets fired indiscriminately at citizens. Later, matching Israeli rationales for a ground invasion, the president amended his verbiage, saying, quote, no nation should accept rockets being fired into its borders or terrorists tunneling into its territory, close quote. An important caveat can be found in the phrases no country and no nation. The stateless people who live in Gaza, 70% of whom are from families expelled from what is now southern Israel, are a very different matter. By the lights of the Oval Office and the New York Times editorial boardroom, lofty rhetoric aside, the proper role of the Palestinian people is to be slaughtered into submission. That's the work of Norman Solomon and Abba Solomon, writing on counterpunch.org. And it's you know bears remembering that uh, Gaza is indeed uh, essentially the world's largest refugee camp. There's been people living there in squalorous conditions. Uh, for nigh on 60 plus years, tent cities and so forth. Uh, and so it's uh, one of Earth's most hellish acres, and it's not getting any better anytime soon. John Kerry has gone over there. I don't know what he hopes to accomplish, 
the last time any U.S. president tried to apply any economic pressure to Israel, you have to go back to George H.W. Bush uh, and his Secretary of State, James Baker, neither of whom I consider myself to be a fan of, but they were the last you know, president-secretary of state tandem team to actually use economic pressure to force Israel's hand, and they did so successfully. They forced Israel to come to the negotiating table for uh, what were at the time sort of the breakthrough uh, Madrid agreements, uh, excuse me, the Oslo uh, Accords, uh, where... Uh, Israel recognized the PLO for the first time as the legitimate representatives of the Palestinian people. Of course, at about that same time, uh, Hamas emerged as a splinter group, and their rise was fostered by the Israeli military intelligence who saw the increased legitimacy of Yasser Arafat's al-Fatah movement of the PLO to be a danger to the long-term goals of the Israeli state to absorb all those territories. Uh, and so Hamas's growth uh, is largely a byproduct of Israel's refusal to accept a legitimate negotiating team from uh, Fatah. So now it's so convenient to have Hamas to bash about. We'll have to talk in upcoming programs about the interesting uh, developments that uh, suggest there are large quantities of natural gas uh, just offshore of Gaza, and the extent to which these might be the real reason for the uh, Israeli excursions into Gaza uh, are certainly cruelly tantalizing. We're going to shift gears one more time in just a moment and uh, wrap the program up with uh, another topic altogether. Well, there's been so many uh, strange things going on in the international realm, and of course we did our couple of shows worth of origins of World War One. We haven't really had much time to talk about some of these more bizarre recent Supreme Court findings. Uh, rather than articulate my own position on this, I'm going to share with you a woman's response to the Supreme Court decision of McCullen v. Coakley. This is Melissa Harris-Perry writing in the July 21st, 28th edition of The Nation magazine, and I think her piece is quite a good one. Here's what she says. It's entitled, Are Women Adults? The Supreme Court's decision on buffer zones is an insult to female autonomy. And here are her words. Reproductive rights advocates warned of intimidation and violence in the wake of the Supreme Court's unanimous decision to eliminate fixed buffer zones around abortion facilities. It's a reasonable response, given a history of physician assassinations, bombing of medical facilities, and harassment at clinic entrances. The decision in McCullen v. Coakley, handed down June 26th, pays lip service to the idea that patients 
should not be subject to harassment, encouraging localities to implement narrowly tailored laws to prevent it, but the decision is not only a threat to women's safety when seeking medical care, it is also an insidious attack on their very personhood. Distinguishing between rowdy protesters and supposedly reasonable petitioners, Chief Justice John Roberts imagines a more civil and deliberate process, writing that, quote, petitioners wish to converse with their fellow citizens about an important subject on the public streets and sidewalks, sites that have hosted discussions about the issues of the day throughout history. Close quote. He laments that, quote, petitioners at all three clinics claim that the buffer zones have considerably hampered their counseling efforts. Close quote. I experienced an early version of these counseling efforts when I volunteered as an escort for women seeking abortions. We would hold their hands and shield their faces as they walked the gauntlet of ghoulish dead infant photos, bloody crosses, and obscene taunts. The experience was terrifying for patients and volunteers. According to the court's decision, buffer zones don't thwart this kind of harassment, they cause it. Roberts implies that women are subject to these threatening displays because anti-choice advocates can't get close enough to patients to whisper gently. Quote, petitioners are not protesters, he writes. They seek not merely to express their opposition to abortion, but to inform women of various alternatives and to provide help in pursuing them. Petitioners believe that they can accomplish this objective only through personal, caring, consensual conversations. If all that the women can see and hear are vociferous opponents of abortion, then the buffer zones have effectively stifled petitioners' message. Close quote. Well, forgive my own editorial intrusion here into Melissa's article, but is Chief Justice John Roberts the most naive Pollyanna or what? I mean, does he actually believe that that's what people want to do? Those angry, hostile protesters? And, uh, Get out your bullshit detectors, people, when John Roberts talks. Melissa Harris uh, Perry continues. Roberts explains further that buffer zones make it hard to tell which people on a public street deserve to be approached by strangers wishing to offer their unsolicited advice. The zones have made it substantially more difficult. Uh, quote, made it substantially more difficult for petitioners to distribute literature to arriving patients. Close quote. Robert notes, adding that Quote, because petitioners cannot readily identify patients before they enter the zone, they often cannot approach them in time to place literature near their hands, the most effective means of getting the patients to accept it, close quote. In short, you can't hear me shaking my head, but I think I can hear you shaking your heads in disbelief and disgust here. I mean, it's really remarkable that he says this out loud in his decision. It's absurd. Melissa continues, in short, if the state attempts to protect pregnant women and their right to privacy by shielding them from intrusive curbside observers, it will infringe on the First Amendment rights of their would-be counselors. This decision has, in the end, unleashed something far more insidious than the danger of a few extremists having greater access to kill or maim. The Supreme Court has decided, unanimously, that the First Amendment protects the right of every single American to approach and intimately counsel any pregnant woman. There is no requirement that such counselors have medical licenses, counseling degrees, or any other professional credentials. There is no requirement that the literature they distribute be accurate. The court's decision erodes the ability of pregnant women to enjoy the rights of autonomy and privacy that are necessary for full citizenship. In his 1928 dissent in Olmstead v. the United States, 
Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis wrote, quote, The makers of our Constitution undertook to secure conditions favorable to the pursuit of happiness. They sought to protect Americans in their beliefs, their thoughts, their emotions, and their sensations. They conferred, as against the government, the right to be let alone, the most comprehensive of rights, and the, most, and the right most valued by civilized men, close quote. This comprehensive right helps establish who is inside or outside the circle of full citizenship. People who are presumed not to have autonomy include slaves, prisoners, and children. Before Roe v. Wade, pregnant women were similarly limited. Some states forced women to obtain counseling and permission from strangers before allowing them to terminate their pregnancies. The result was an incredible invasion of privacy. For example, in the late 1960s, women in Washington state could receive, quote, therapeutic abortions, uh, close quote, if they managed to convince a panel of doctors that the procedure was medically necessary. Psychologist Samuel Goldenberg listened as women pleaded with strangers for the right to end unwanted pregnancies by explaining the emotionally difficult, financially contingent, and sometimes domestically violent circumstances of their lives. Goldenberg, a licensed counselor, uh, was deeply troubled as he watched these panels force women to carry pregnancies against their will. His experiences put him at the forefront of the Referendum 20 movement, which legalized first trimester abortions in Washington a full three years before Roe v. Wade established a right to privacy for pregnant women. These days, conservative lawmakers have set about eliminating legitimate sources of information and care. Under the guise of protecting women's health, states are passing restrictive trap laws, and that's short for Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers. Uh, aimed at closing facilities that offer abortions by forcing them to comply with arbitrary rules about standard hallway widths and physician admitting privileges. By one reading, the Roberts Court's buffer zone ruling is narrowly tailored, allowing states to impose other restrictions on anti-choice protesters. By another reading, however, the Court's decision spells out the terms for gutting pregnant, women, pregnant women's access not only to abortion, but to their full rights as citizens. That's Melissa Harris Perry writing in the end of July uh, 2014 Nation magazine. Well, that's about all the time we have uh, on Gray Matters this week. I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay tuned uh, to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Yazoo City Calling will be coming up next. Thanks again to Andrew for engineering today's program via the miracle of science and technology. Have a pleasant evening, and we'll be back next week for another edition of Gray Matters. Stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling, coming up next.
But at the new school once, I was substituting for Henry Cowell, teaching a class in Oriental music. I had told him I didn't know anything about the subject. He said, that's all right, just go where the records are, take one out, play it, and then discuss it with the class. Then I took out the first record. It was an LP of a Buddhist service. It began with a short, microphonic sound, and then soon settled down into a single, loud, reiterated, passive beat. This noise continued relentlessly for about 15 minutes with no perceptible variation. A lady got up and screamed, and then yelled, Take it off! I can't bear it any longer. I took it off. A man in the class then said angrily, Why'd you take it off? I was just getting interested. In WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Good evening, this is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. The time is now 7 o'clock, and it's time for Yazoo City Calling, our weekly tribute to early American blues originals, broadcasting to you live every Monday at 7 on 88.3 FM on your radio. My name is Weston. The show has been broadcasting for over 25 years since Jerry Max started it in 1986. Uh, 1988, I mean. Um, if you'd like to call and make a request, 734-763-3500 is the phone number. On tonight's broadcast, we will be listening to a collection of field recordings, beginning with Bessie Jones and the Georgia Sea Island Singers. This song is titled, O Day. Actually, this song is titled Sign of Judgment. Bessie Jones and the Georgia Sea Island Singers. See the sign of the Jaden Man. Oh, yeah. 